You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. As a system of governance, democracy has come to define institutions and administrations the world over, and is one of the enduring characteristics of the modern nation-state. The success of democracy requires a sense of decorum, the peaceful transfer of power, competition coinciding with respect for one's political opponents, for example. But in recent years, the democracies of the Western world have seemingly reached an impasse in this regard, enduring a rising tide of political polarization that has begun to push incivility from the political fringe to the political mainstream. The question of how to stem this trend of polarization has become one of the defining issues of our time for democratic scholars, comparativists, security specialists, and political theorists alike, with no easy answer clearly in sight. But perhaps the key to this issue isn't found in the politics of our time, but rather in the philosophy of the past. Indeed, the ingredients necessary for democracy to function were a deep preoccupation of the philosophers of the classic era. And on this episode of the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, we discuss one such ingredient that is often overlooked, that of friendship. How is friendship political? And what is the role of friendship in democracy? And in what ways does friendship, or perhaps more accurately, a lack thereof, help explain this current impasse of incivility seemingly haunting the contemporary democratic world? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined this week by Ali Eliassi. Ali is a PhD candidate with the Department of Political Science specializing in ancient political theory, Islamic thought, and democracy. Ali, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So much has been written about the ingredients necessary for democracy to function. You know, things like social capital, institutional development, trust. You know, there are so many different elements. But friendship, you know, while related to these concepts, is very much its own beast. And I'm, I guess I'm just interested to hear, to open here, you know, how have theorists over the course of history conceptualized friendship and its relationship to democracy? And how has it changed over time? So conceptualizing friendship with democracy is an interesting question. Uh, I'm going to make it a little bit more broader and talk about friendship and politics in totality, because I think it also includes democracy in some way. After all, democracy is a political regime. And I'm going to focus mostly uh, on this conversation on Aristotle, because he's the one who's given us the most let's say comprehensive definition of friendship and the most ambiguous one at the same time. In fact, he has an entire chapter of his Nicomachean ethics dedicated to the concept of friendship. And what he does is, and according and as the ancients would do, he talk about friendship and love in very interrelated terms. They're not the same thing, but friendship does demand a degree of love. And he also says that friendship is in a way political. Now, before we go on, I would like to emphasize that when I'm talking about Aristotle's conception of politics, I'm not discussing politics as we conceptualize it today. For Aristotle, and this is how it ties to friendship, politics is about a higher way of life for human beings. So when we talk of living, Aristotle makes two very important distinctions, living well and living. One could say living is simply a bare life 
modes of existence. You live, you eat, you sleep, and so on. The day goes on. Whereas living well includes things that are not necessary to you, one's life, but rather makes one life more pleasurable, more enjoyable. For example, philosophy, um, for example, a family, for example, going on hikes. All of these requires politics because politics is the precondition that makes a good life possible for humankind. In regard to the family, you need the institutional family. In regard to going on hikes, well, one needs a job, one needs the weekend, one needs roads, all these come through politics, if you're looking at it from a very policy-focused angle. Now, how does friendship come into this? Well, friendship is a quintessential necessity for one to live a good life. In fact, Aristotle tells us this. One would want to be independent, that is not be dependent on other people, but nobody wants to live without friends. Everybody wants friends. So how does this relate to politics? Well, Aristotle says there are three different types of friendships. The first one is utilitarian. The second one is pleasure. And the third one he calls true friendship, or some would say complete friendship. Most political friendships, and this is again one of Aristotle's saying, politicians need friends most of all. They usually utilize the utilitarian friendship, that is they use people for a particular end. Um, we see this in fact in a great deal of different political institutions. For example, in the United States, we see senators going golfing together, forming bonds with each other. And then during those golf sessions or maybe during like coffee sessions where they're sitting around eating, they discuss bills maybe, and they try to get each other on whatever bill they wanna pass, try to get votes or rather, feel the field. How is it going to build past? Who's going to vote for it? Who's not? These friendships matter. Those are very utilitarian. We also see it in the international sphere. For example, the relationship between Justin Trudeau and Barack Obama. That was kind of like a utilitarian friendship. We see it between diplomats who know each other and are more well-versed in each other's languages. The other form of friendship is a pleasurable friendship. Now, the pleasurable friendships are friendships that one gets a pleasure out of. Utility can also be part of this. So it's much more vast than the previous form of friendship. One takes pleasure, for example, as a kid playing in sandboxes with his friends or her friends. Um, that's a form of friendship that is brought about through the focus on pleasure. As people get older, these pleasure changes. One will, for example, adopt hobbies. One will, for example, adopt different things and they take pleasure in that, whether it's a video game or online games or whatever. Uh, they gain pleasure through those activities together. The third kind is the complete friendship. And this friendship is not based around an activity, but the context of character. And this is what Aristotle says is one of the most important friendships. I'm one of the rarest one, because by having a friend, you are effectively having another self in another person. And you're seeing the good characteristic of yourself in them. So these type of friendships also produce one's good characteristic and help you develop them. This is incredibly important. One of the interesting thing about, for example, tyrants is that they don't have any friends. That's one of the quintessential characters of being a tyrant. They don't have anything good in regard to context. So they can't really see another person as themselves because they are all that be, so to speak. 
um, having another self demands a kind of humility by saying that I understand that I have good characteristics, but I know I am incomplete. And another person can come in and complement my strength and weaknesses so that I can become more complete. And this is only possible through a political community. Because as I said, Aristotle's definition of politics is about achieving a higher purpose that is not simply bare life, but a good life. And since friendship, particularly true friendship, is incredibly important to a good life, one can't help but to realize that for Aristotle, politics and friendship are incredibly intertwined. The question is, do we value it today as much as people like Aristotle would? Well, that's a difficult question because we still have a kind of prominence to friendship in today's politics as well, because we one of the most important element people talk about with respect to, for example, mental health is the question of loneliness. And loneliness can be overcome through forming true friendship bonds, as Aristotle would say. But the difficulty here is that for Aristotle, this true friendship is incredibly rare. And we see it today more rarely than ever before. And that could be contributed to the fact that the history of political thought in a way changed rather than from focusing on friendship, a good life, a much more prosperous life in terms of internal developments. The history of political thought began conceptualizing politics as a more utilitarian approach with the works of, we can see this in the works of Thomas Hobbes. We can see this more and more in the works of Locke, Kant, and we see a kind of a anxiety-inducing situation with this development in that we begin to consider less and less the internal conditions of human beings. And more and more politics became about how do we manage the society in such a way that they can develop their own selves without any form of political intervention i.e. freedom. The more freedom one has, the more they can develop themselves. So with the shift being from development to freedom, friendship took a back step. We now talk of friendship as a private endeavor, whereas when Aristotle talks about it, it's a more public endeavor. And we can see this in different forms and shapes in today's politics. It's really interesting that friendship was previously conceptualized as this very public thing and then was kind of pushed to the private sphere, so to speak, but it's still intrinsic of our, in our politics. It's still this very present political thing. And I, I, I can't help but wonder, how have theorists viewed its place as an area of policy, so to speak? How do they conceptualize policies that could promote friendship by the state as a virtuous political end? Uh, the short answer is they haven't. Um, it's not a very satisfactory answer, but it's a true answer, I feel like, because when we talk about politics today, I mean, think about it in terms of, for example, online debates, and because I'm using online debates as the medium that most people are most familiar with. When people talk about online debates, the topic is usually about, for example, national economics. If it's not US, it's federal Canada or federal anything. Nobody really talks about the minutia, small bits of politics that matter more for them as an individual. People talk about macro concepts. Usually boils down to economics. Or if you're getting into more and more, let's say, quote, unquote, higher level of political discussion, you get into international relation. 
people are a lot more inclined to talk about what should Canada's relation to, for example, China be, then so how should I conduct myself as a neighbor to my neighbor who is another individual? Or how should I cultivate friendship? That usually in today's politics have been relegated to a domain of not just private sphere, but your own individual sphere. So it's even more than a private sphere. Private sphere, we consider, for example, a home, the individual sphere is you as an individual. What it means is there is no real policy push to make people become friends, but there is this assumption that by having more freedom, they will engage in more and more friendly attitudes towards each other, and they are able to cultivate more and more friendship. The difficulty with that is what we see, at least in today's world, and what I feel like many people feel rather than directly see, is that they're becoming more and more productive, but less and less in tune with their leisure. So people are working more and more, they're producing more and more, they have a higher standard of living than their parents and their grandparents had better standing than their grandparents. But that higher standard of living needs to be sustained. And to sustain that, they work harder and harder and harder. But as they work harder and harder and harder, 24 hours in a day is not going to get to be 26 hours and 26 is not going to get 28 hours. It's still 24 hours in a day, which means they have to cut back from their leisure time. A leisure time, particularly in ancient Greek conceptualization, is the time in which you engage in higher activities, such as philosophy, such as cultivating friendships, such as spending time with people. This is the time you engage in discourse, you engage in political talks with your fellow Athenians, let's say, in terms of Aristotle. You go to the Argus and start talking. That leisure time has been effectively stripped away. And even when we talk about leisure today, we're mostly talking about wasting time rather than cultivating something. For example, what do we do for leisure time? Well, I'm gonna just do something mind-numbing so I don't have to think. And that is fair because mind needs to rest because we are getting more and more productive. We need to produce more. We need more rest in some sense. But when we have, and by the way, I believe Athenians also had leisure, a waste of time and a work hours or work time. But now we have effectively eliminated leisure altogether and we only have the other two which makes it difficult to cultivate friendship because when you're doing something mind-numbing, you're not building character or engaging with someone who's building character. And we see this kind of language today in terms of work. Where do you build character? In your workplace. You have water cooler conversation. That's the area of leisure now that we have engaged in rather than actual activities of leisurely activities, such as reading, engaging in music groups. Those are leisurely activities because you're cultivating something. So today, politicians don't really think about friendship because it doesn't play an important role with regard, for them at least, with regard to economics, with regard to foreign policy. And I think much more damaging to friendship is peoples that is not politicians, not economists, but regular average people's view of friendship in that it has taken a back seat to everything else. And I think that's the biggest damage to friendship because it is not just a policy area, it's a self-cultivation area. And we more and more engage in a type of utilitarian and pleasure-based friendship rather than a complete friendship where we regard to one's character. 
as I said, one of the pleasures that we get is playing online video games. But other pleasures we get, which is also utilitarian, is to go on online forums for our own particular causes. Some people are never ever even see the person they're talking to on a forum, but they consider them a friend. That, if you're taking an Aristotelian view, is incredibly damaging because that is a friendship based purely on utility and pleasure. Now, Aristotle also says that those are the two dominant forms of friendship. But in today's society, we are getting those type of friendship as the only friendship. And there's no policy push or politicians pushing to change that because they don't seem to think they have an incentive to change that. They've simply relegated to individuals' private sphere and they try to make the public sphere as open as they can or as open as they think they should so that people can come together and form bonds. But whether that works or not is up to debate. So I think we're hovering around a really important point in terms of this dislodging of real meaningful friendship. And that's this current crisis of democracy that the Western world is facing, right? And I can't help but wonder what role does this dislodging play in it? Because we see the sort of expansion of the politics of bad faith, violent polarization, nativist populism, disinformation, these forms of discourse once upon a time were kind of at the fringes. Now they're fundamental elements of mainstream politics as well in democracies. And I'm really interested to hear uh, your thoughts on how you think friendship might be tied to these increasing trends of democratic decay. So I think true friendship could be a good antidote to this question of populism, because populism and nativism and all these type of isms are effectively rooted in a mentality of me versus you, friend-enemy distinction. I have friends and others are enemy. And enemy is not merely a presence, but rather an existential threat that is present that needs to be removed in some way. Um, So there's a rooted anxiety with respect to nativism and polarization. So one thing that true friendship can do, and as I said, true friendship is about seeing, or rather complete friendship, sorry, is about seeing the good characteristics of yourself in another, which means it's humbling, but also it sees the good in the other. It humanizes the other person. It gives them an opportunity to be seen as another you. It's a form of empathy. Whether that can be cultivated in modern age, that's a difficult question to answer because with the advent of technology, particularly social media, what we have seen is that this polarization seems to have been exasperated. We have now Twitter wars, people are insulting each other on Facebook and these engagement online do have real political implications at the very least when it comes to voting, if not for conspiracy theories. And all of these come and cultivate in a notion of there is an existential threat against us. So we need to brace ourselves and get ready for combat. Whereas with friendship is not about combating or rather even surviving. With friendship, it's about betterment. When one speaks the language of anxiety, one is intrinsically speaking the language of necessity. I need to survive. There's an existential threat. I have no choice. Friendship, and this is again, me borrowing from Aristotle, 
is a choice worthy action. That is, it is not a necessity, it is a good, but it's one which we engage in by choice. We don't have to, but we will. We don't want to have no friends. We want to have friends. And that introduction of want rather than need is what sets human beings apart from other animals in that we don't simply work based on our needs. We want a higher purpose. We want to cultivate ourselves. We want to be more than what we are which is interesting enough, what makes both human beings the most nobles of creature and most vile of creatures. Because in that endeavor, we could do horrible things, but also we could achieve great things. So this is not a positive or negative, but both. So how would friendship be able to counteract this? Well, it is a lot more difficult to attack someone as an existential threat when you can see good characteristics in them. For example, let's have X and Y and X hates Y. But when X goes to, for example, a new cookie shop that opened up, Y is the owner. And so, oh, Y can cook cookies. Now we're seeing a more and more human interaction. And this is why I mentioned social media is because the example I give demands a physical presence. And this is key. It's a lot easier to hate someone if you don't see them if they're just words on a monitor, if they are an absence keyboard typing warrior thing that's just happening in the ether with no emotional attachment, with no history, with no context, with no needs, with no human emotions. But when you are there and you say something to them and you try to say, well, I don't like you, it's a lot tougher to bring those words out because there's a physical presence there that you at the very intrinsic level or a very primordial level, empathize with as a human being, even by visually alone, you say, okay, this person can feel pain because I feel pain. That's a human relation right there that is not really spoken, but it's immediately connected. And that works in your mind in a way that you wanna pull back from the way you will engage with them. This is a very important characteristic of public sphere, which if we consider social media public sphere today is simply not there. Whether friendship or true friendship can be cultivated in the era of social media, in the era of Twitter politics, in the era of Facebook politics, it's difficult to ascertain because people look at each other as another follower. Instagram, another example of this, people look at each other as another follower as a means of selling something. These are all, again, a form of friendship, but these are utilitarian friendships. These are not true friendships. And with utilitarian, as Aristotle teaches us, they are eventually done away with when the person serves no more utility for you. Same thing with pleasure. If you're friend with someone purely based on pleasure, when they grow out of that habit that you take pleasure in, well, you will not be friends anymore. That is why the characteristic of friendship is incredibly important. And to draw this distinction even further, imagine X and Y are friends. They are friends originally because they both go to a protest, whatever protest you would like to have them in. They're friends because they look to protest. But one day X tells Y, I have reconsidered my position on this. I don't know if I believe in this whatever cause anymore. Now, if this friendship is purely based on utility and pleasure, i.e. 
you and I are a political ally in order to get this policy passed, or you and I are taking pleasure in fighting for justice, this is where the friendship would end. But if the friendship is based on a characteristic, X and Y will engage in a discussion over why they were originally doing the protest together. And usually, if this is characteristic, true friendship based on characteristic, they realize that they're both seeking justice. That's why they engage in the protest. So that looking for justice is what connects them. That's a characteristic, not an activity. That's inclination towards justice, that needs for justice, that want of justice rather than protesting or whatever other activity you would like to replace it with, video games, posting on forums, playing music, one can even say this for music, for example. You have a friend who's enjoying a music, but they no longer enjoy the music you do. But if you both friends because of the characteristic of loving, beautiful sounds, then you still can keep that bond together and grow stronger. But also you will have a physical presence with each other. In today's era, with the advantage of technology, giving access to everyone at every point in time, without really giving access to them as an individual, that type of friendship becoming more and more difficult to cultivate, not impossible, but more difficult. I don't think there is any politics that can, politics, not in a sense of Aristotelian politics, but in a sense of our politics, as in policy and institutions that can fix that. The only way this can be fixed and the only way people can counteract the polarization is to first acknowledge a certain sense of humility and then second try to connect with others on a more personal level put the phone down and just go for a walk and maybe i don't have a dog but this is what i was told that when people take their dogs for walks they meet other dog walkers and they kind of strike up a conversation because they're coming and going taking the walks at the same time those little conversations matter because true friendship doesn't come out of the ether. You don't meet someone and you say, I like your characteristic, let's go, we are friends now. No, you meet someone, you engage with them, you interact with them, for example, through protests, and then you see more and more of who they truly are, what their characteristic are, what are their pains are, what are their happy, what makes them happy. Rather than purely on the activity of playing in a sandbox, or posting on forums or playing video games. So that needs to be taken from a bottom-up approach that is people on an everyday aspect rather than from a top-down approach. That's the only way I see it happening. I think you hit on some pretty important things there, you know, particularly as it relates to technology and social media, uh, these things which are so ubiquitous and we are so embedded in, in, in some ways. I guess I'm really interested to hear about that. Like, what sort of inferences can we draw on political theory on our embeddedness in technology and the way that it's impacting the relationship between citizenship and democracy and friendship? You know, what would Aristotle say about Twitter? Oh, Aristotle would not have much good to say about Twitter, <laughs> as many <laughs> other people today would not. But, um, these are difficult questions to answer from an Aristotelian approach, mainly because I don't think Aristotle would consider what we have today politics in a 
strict term of the in the strict sense, because foreign politics was effectively an Athenian politics, which is a city politics, not a countrywide politics. Even Ottawa would be too big for him to be an actual political community. So for one, it needs to be much smaller. But in regard to technology, he would be flabbergasted because technology is not just nations anymore, it's global. You can interact with someone not just in Ottawa, you can interact with someone in China or Japan or Iran or Saudi Arabia or Nigeria or Congo. This makes politics so different for Aristotle. In fact, one thing Aristotle doesn't talk about a lot is international relations, because that's not strictly speaking politics for him. Um, even today, we consider it to be one of the higher forms of politics. It's not for Aristotle. Politics is very, very small community base, precisely because there is an immediate interconnectivity with people. So Aristotle, I think, would give us some advice on this that probably our grandparents would give us. The first one would probably be, we should probably put the phones down. Um, go out for walks because sunshine does wonders for the mood. These are old timey advices, but they do work. Better diets, more interaction. And I think most important of all is to look at the world not through through the lens of necessity, but betterment. Because when we look at the world through a lens of necessity, what we see at every point is a condition that can eliminate us, that can stifle our potentialities, that is about destruction. The idea that if you don't get a better job, you'll fall behind. If you don't finish this, you'll fall behind. These are all based on necessities. I would say, let's look at the world from a different lens, a lens of possibilities, a lens of wants rather than necessities. And that way, if you're looking at what we want, and I don't mean want in a sense of like egotistical, I want everything, but rather deep internal understanding of what we want out of life, not just a good job, not just a house, but rather connections with human beings, betterment, self-betterment, not economic betterment alone. Of course, economic betterment is needed. Um, it's hard to be self-developing if you're homeless, absolutely. But once you achieved that state of being where you can comfortably look internally, it's time to look more internally because now you can and you should. Because now you're seeing potentialities. You're now start seeing people less and less as enemies or oppositions, but more and more as individuals like you who have probably problems, have hopes, have dreams. When we look at it from that angle, we realize that we're all in a way incomplete and we're all just mumbling through the life that we have. That gives us a lot more relaxed attitude towards our interaction with other people rather than thinking, well, I have to get from X to Y at this time. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to get there at all. Whereas when you say, well, I'm going to get from X to Y, but in that process, maybe I don't get to Y. Maybe I get to Z. Who knows? I want to see who I meet. I want to see what happens. Because life can be, as someone once told me, quoting Charlie Chaplin, a wonderful adventure. Or it can be a very, very dark tunnel where if you even 
go slightly away from the designated lines, you're going to hit the tunnel's wall and you're going to crash and burn. A perspective does really help. And again, not everybody can change their perspective. But if you can, you definitely should. Looking at people in more of a human term rather than utility. One thing, for example, with respect to friendship and politics, because when we talk of politics today, we ask, what can person get me? Get, get for me? What can I use this person for? Again, the example of bills being passed, politicians going to coffee shops and talking to each other over breakfast, trying to get them on their side. But rather, we should think more in terms of what can this person teach me about me? Where can I improve my life and this person's through my interactions with them? Because this also leads to self-discovery. And this is a very important point that I think with mod modern times we have lost. With the advent of modern politics, we came to view ourselves as more and more complete. So a lot of times when we make political claims, we also make ought claims. That is politics should be this because this ought to be right. Whereas for Aristotle and the ancients, in a way we can look back and go, wait a minute, I am not a complete person. Politics and through engagement is what, how I become complete. Because then I engage with people who are also incomplete and they can supplement me and I can supplement them. That way we become better as a whole and as individuals at the same time. So to go around a very roundabout way, what we need to do is to look more internally. What we need to do is to look at wants in a terms of internal wants rather than purely utilitarian wants. And we have to be humble. We have to be open to possibilities. And lastly, and most importantly, we have to fundamentally recognize that as people, we are incomplete. And it is through our pure interactions with others that we can gain some semblance of happiness, completeness, and friendship. So in other words, other people are necessary for our betterment. So if we choose to be better, friendship is a necessary component of that. I guess the final philosophical question I, I have here is that there's definitely a roadmap here in, in community and in greater engagements and greater understanding of one another. But I, I can't help but wonder, you know, if we're too embedded in the other side, you know, are we too just rational utilitarian? I'm going to use a Charlie Chaplin quote myself. <laughs> are we just machine men with machine hearts, machine minds? Uh, is there a way that we can look to philosophy to find a way to undo that, to walk it back towards a, you know, a real politics of friendship? I would say absolutely with caveat. And my caveat is if we read good philosophy. Now, I am a bit biased on that. So I will try to be as abstract and as unbiased as I possibly can. But if this, is, this conversation has been any indication, I am definitely biased towards Aristotelian views at least how I understand them. But philosophy is essentially about a love of knowledge and knowing oneself is a form of knowledge. Socrates famously said philosophy is in a way a preparation for death. That sounds very morbid, but at the same time, it's quite empowering because to prepare for death, one needs to understand life. One needs to understand themselves. One needs to live a fulfilled life. 
And to do all that, one needs politics, one needs knowledge, one needs sentiment, one needs emotion, one needs friends, one needs the entirety of life and everything it has to offer. It needs to realize the potentials that makes him better or her better or they better. Philosophy teaches us, good philosophy at least, to look internally more and more. Of course, there are political theorists who would say institutional arrangements are important, and they absolutely are. That is not to take away anything from them. But the internal element of politics, the individual elements of politics is also important. Politics shouldn't just revolve around international relation or federal politics or even provincial politics. Sometimes city politics is just as important because going to a town hall is where you get engagement. I always challenge my students and ask them, who's the mayor of your city? And few of them can answer. And then I ask, who's the prime minister of Canada? And they all can answer that. And media does play a role in that, absolutely. But there's also city channels they can watch. There's also avenues of engaging with their city politics. And in fact, engaging with city politics is a lot easier to engage in comparison to provincial politics or federal politics because so few people engage in it. Um, go sit on a town hall meeting, just talk to your neighbor. Stuff like that helps build a community. As you said, community is incredibly important. And it is true that we are embedded, but I will quote Aristotle again, whatever has the potential for evil has the potential for good. Embeddedness shouldn't be disempowering. Embeddedness is a condition that can be overcome. If we are embedded, we can also, I don't know what the word is, so I'm just gonna invent the word here, unembedded. We can unembed ourselves, let's say, from this embeddedness. It is definitely possible, but not easy. It requires an active effort on our parts as individuals to do. Friendship, again, true friendship, utilitarian friendship and pleasure friendship are easy because you engage in an activity together and you take pleasure out of the activity, not the character of the person. But character of the person and true friendship is incredibly difficult because you are not engaging in the activity anymore and they might have fundamentally changed the activity by which you're engaging in, but rather, you are getting a kind of contextualization of the person themselves, who they truly are. And that could be very frightening, both for you as a friend, because now you're seeing a vulnerable side of someone you did not thought vulnerable before because you're just engaging them in terms of utility and pleasure, and they for opening up to you, and you in a way opening up to them. These formal bonds are rare but necessary. And the embeddedness of technology does stifle that, but does not make it impossible. It makes it very difficult, but it's possible. And the only way forward is for us to, again, I will be the grandpa, put the phone down, go for a walk, and just smile once in a while to people who pass us by. So the last question I have is, you have a simple one. Tell us about your work. What have you been working on? You know, where has your research been taking you? Well, my research has been taking me in all sorts of direction, uh, but my focus at the moment is democratic theory. And I focus on rationality and sentiment. In particular, what I look at is the question of legitimacy and how it has been mostly conceptualized in a rational way in the literature of democratic theory. And by using Hume and Al-Farabi, two very, very 
unconventional thinkers in their own right, but also not necessarily related. I'm trying to see if there's another way of conceptualizing legitimacy and understanding legitimacy, at least theoretically. Uh, this is just a hypothesis, uh, particularly looking at Al-Farabi's questions of happiness and Hume's conceptions of sentiment and its role in politics. I'm trying to see if we can look beyond rationality and see the limits of rationality. As we can see, particularly through the works of social contract theories such as Hobbes or Locke, and even Rousseau and Kant, and particularly Rawls. But we'll see where that goes. Well, it sounds like interesting and infinitely important work, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Thank you very much for joining us today to talk about happiness. This has been a great talk, and I look forward to more talks ahead. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poly sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.